Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. My name is Duncan. I have the privilege of serving as pastor here, and it's my great delight to welcome you to come and to worship the Lord. We're going to read some verses of Scripture together. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, These words that I read, you will find them printed in the diary that was handed out on the way in. Um, Or if you have a Bible, please do turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read this morning from verse 4 through to verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. This is God's Word. And let me ask you, do do you want to know what the meaning of life is? And I'm serious. Do you want to know what the meaning of life is? Do you want to know why you are on planet earth, why you have breath in your lungs, why you have electrical signals and impulses in your brain. Because, you know, it's common for people today to assume that there is no answer to that question, or at best, um, we are here to replicate our DNA and to pass that on. But we have been created by God and created for a purpose. But what is it? Those verses that we read in 1 Peter 2 tell you. Bet you didn't spot it, did you? They tell you. Many have tried to summarize uh, the great purpose of life. Many Christians uh, over many generations. The Westminster Larger Catechism asks the first question, what is the chief and highest end of man? In other words, what are we here for? And the answer they give is, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. Or more recently, the New City Catechism waits till question four to ask, how and why did God create us? God created us male and female in His own image to know Him, love Him, live with Him, and glorify Him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to His glory. Oh, that's lovely. 
What are we here for? Maybe, maybe those kind of answers come as news to you today. You see that um, these ways of seeing the world that uh, we have all around us are, are, are actually not the way to find meaning. And that the Bible is telling us that the way that we find the meaning of life is not by looking at ourselves, it is by looking to another being altogether. We find our true meaning in God. First Peter is a letter that was written almost 2,000 years ago by one of Jesus' first disciples to Christians who were finding life hard. And the main reason life was hard is because, well, because they were Christians. They were out of place in their world. They lived somewhere on the edge of the Roman Empire, and they had found that as Christians, this world was no longer a place that felt like home. Suddenly, they were out of place because they followed Jesus. And this letter was written to encourage them, written to help them to persevere through all of those difficulties. And so far, as we've spent a few weeks looking at this letter, Peter has shown them that they can and they must persevere because the destination that they're headed to is worth it. They have a great hope which is being kept in heaven for them. But you see, the message of Christianity is not only one that points to a glorious future, something that is promised to every believer in Jesus. It has something to say about life now. It has something to say about why we're here now. And so here, Peter shows these Christians how God has, how He's transformed them into something new, how their belief in Jesus brought them into, into what we could call God's great construction project. And if they understand how spectacular this thing that they're part of, that God is building, then there they will find life's purpose. Peter wants us to see that Christians are being built on a sure foundation, and from that everything else will come. Um, recently, I was loaned a copy of a biography um, about a man who came from Huntley in the uh, mid-19th century. Duncan Matheson was his name, and he uh, was a missionary in a number of places, including um, the Crimea, the Ukraine. Anyway, listen to this bit of his story. He says, I was standing on the 10th of December, 1846, at the end of my father's house, and meditating on that precious word which has brought peace to countless weary ones. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I saw that God loved me, for I was one of the world. I saw the proof of his love in the giving of his son, Jesus. I saw that whosoever meant anybody and everybody, and therefore me, even me. I saw the result of believing that I would not perish but have everlasting life. I was enabled to take God at his word. My burden fell from my back, and I was saved. 
Matheson's life was never the same again after that moment where he saw Jesus clearly and saw that he was a savior for me, even me. And when you hear a Christian tell their story, Christians have all manner of different stories, all manner of different roads that they have come to Jesus, but they all come to this point. They all come to this point. The trajectory of life changed when they trusted in Jesus Christ. And Peter wants to show these Christians that the transformation that took place and is still taking place when they believed was so significant that it brought them into the greatest privileges that it's possible for a human being to know. So let's look at how Peter does this. He starts in verse 4, as you come to him. Well, who is the him that they come to? Well, he is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. This is how Peter speaks about Jesus Christ. You see that confirmed at the end of verse 5. They, the people he's writing to, have come to Jesus And here they're reminded that belief in Jesus changes everything. That's what's happened for them. Belief in Jesus changes everything. For these exiles, they became part of God's building project. And as they come to Jesus, they, um, verse 5, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That's God's building project. Maybe it doesn't thrill us that much to hear about it. They're being built as living stones into a spiritual house. You know, this language, a spiritual house, is the language of the temple. It's temple language. You can tell the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation through this theme of the temple, the way that the Bible uses this language of the temple a place where people will meet with God. You start in the book of Genesis how Adam and Eve were set there in a garden temple, a place where God would dwell with them, but through their sin they were banished from that garden temple. And the rest of the Bible is the story of how God makes a way for human beings, sinful human beings, to return again to the place where God dwells. And there are shadows of it throughout Israel's history. You read in the book of Exodus, they build the tabernacle, this tent where God would dwell in their midst. And then there's the temple that Solomon would build. But here, Peter says that God is building a temple. He's still doing that, but it's not one that's made with bricks, not built with mortar, but with living stones. He's building these Christians into a dwelling place for God. That's what he's saying to them. This is what he's doing for you. He is making you into a place where he will dwell. This is where you'll find God's particular presence today. Not in any building, not even in this building, friends, but you find God's particular presence in the people of the church. They are now his spiritual house. But you see, this building is to make them into a specific kind of people. So still in verse 5, like living stones, you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy 
priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, along with a temple always went a priest, one who had access to God, one who could bring the sacrifices and offerings before God, one who could represent the ordinary person before God. And in the Old Testament times, there was a specific family from a specific tribe of Israelites that had this privileged role among God's people. But now, do you see what Peter is saying? He's saying God in this new spiritual house has made a new priesthood. And it's not narrowly confined to the Jews or to the tribe of Levi, but it's a privilege that comes to every believer in Jesus Christ. It is not a select few who get access to God. Just because someone is called a minister or a pastor or even sometimes dare to take the title of priest or worse, they have no greater access than anyone else who simply comes in faith to Jesus Christ. This is his message to these exiles. He says, God is building you up to be a holy priesthood. You have the access into the presence of God. And what is it that makes this more than merely interesting for us? This is more than interesting. And the reason it's more than interesting is because the language that Peter uses is really quite specific. And especially you see this in verse 9 when he returns to this theme again. Look at verse 9 with me. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You see, this is almost exactly the same language that God used when he spoke about his ancient people, Israel. Not so long ago, we were working through the book of Exodus here. Exodus 19, some of these words are exactly the same of how God spoke to the sort of relationship he was calling his people to have with him. He wanted them to know him as his chosen people, as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And now, this letter, written not to descendants of Israelites in Moses' day, no, this letter is written to non-Jewish people who knew nothing of those things, to the people who were outside of the promises of God, to the people who had no clear sense that they were even looking for a Savior, who had no insight into the system of priests and sacrifices. These people, scattered to the edge of nowhere, insignificant, not at home in this world, suffering terribly, and yet here Peter can say to them, guys, belief in Jesus for you has changed everything. You really are now the people of God. God is pleased to dwell in you. You have access into the presence of God. And this doesn't just apply in, in Turkey in the 60s AD. What a wonder to be able to say those same things in this room here today. If you have come to Jesus Christ, then this privilege is your privilege as well. You are part of the people of God. You are being built together with these other Christians around you into a dwelling place for God. 
You have access into the presence of God as part of his royal priesthood. Yeah, even you, even me. And that's not something Peter says, well, that will happen in heaven when you die or when Jesus comes back. No, this is happening here and now. This is who you are. This is the present reality for every believer in Jesus. But we're not quite done with this yet because, well, God has made Christians to be priests so that they would do what? Well, he tells us that as well. In the Old Testament, the priest would make animal sacrifices. They would burn up parts of the animal. They would sprinkle blood. And mercifully, that's not what we are called to do today. I mean, the regulations we would have to go through to be allowed to do those sorts of things here would be unthinkable. But thankfully, God says, those things are done away with. No, look at verse 5. Why, why has he made them a holy priesthood? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Or in verse 9, he puts it this way, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, the priest had a role in representing the people before God. He brought their sacrifices and so on, but also his role was to represent God to the people to communicate the word to them. And here Peter tells us that our sacrifices to God are in proclaiming the greatness of God, and that every one of us is qualified to do that if we're a believer, well, because we have firsthand experience to declare. We have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. We know what God has done for us. And he expands on that beautifully in verse 10. Once we were nobodies, that's what he says, once you were nobodies, going nowhere, outsiders, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. We were deserving only of God's judgment as sinners who had turned our backs to God. And he says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is always to be the driving force behind serving God. It is a response of gratitude to what He has first done for us. It's recognizing what God has done in Jesus Christ that, wants, that, that makes us want to proclaim the goodness, the greatness, the mercifulness, the perfections of who God is. I mean, there's no sense in these verses that Priests are doing these things to earn something from God? No, it's because we know the joy of being delivered from darkness to light that we can serve as priests before God and offer spiritual sacrifices pleasing to Him. The book of Hebrews has something to say about this as well. In chapter 13, you would find this exhortation almost closing off the letter. Through Him, then, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You see, the sacrifices that God calls His people to are things that are carried on their lips and borne out in their lives. 
This is what Peter wants these exiles to grasp, their great status, the honor, as he'll put it in verse 7, that God has granted to believers in Jesus Christ. If you grasp this, it will fuel a heart that loves Jesus. It will fuel a life that honors Jesus. No longer living in deceit or hypocrisy or envy or slander like used to characterize the recipients of this letter, but a life that is now nourished with pure spiritual milk of the Word of God. And I fear that for many of us, myself included, we very often settle for a view of what it means to be part of God's people that falls way, way short of this. And so for your encouragement, Christian brothers and sisters, every time you sit down as a family to do a short Bible reading or to pray together at the end of the day, there, my friends, is a pleasing sacrifice offered by a priest of God. When you come to church to meet with and encourage the rest of your church family as we hear from God and respond to Him in faith, there the work of God's royal priesthood is at work at play right there. When you go to work and do an honest day's labor, whether it's noticed or not, when you care for children preferring their needs to yours, when you give sacrificially to the work of the gospel, whether that's your time or your money or your energy, in these sorts of things and in a million others, there is an offering pleasing to the Lord. When you tell a friend your story of how you came to faith in Jesus, there the excellencies of God are proclaimed and a spiritual sacrifice pleasing to Him is offered. When a believer is baptized and declares that their trust is only in Jesus. There, the excellencies of God who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light is taking place. This is the great privilege we have because, you see, belief in Jesus changes everything. Everything is elevated. Everything takes on a different perspective, right? Because we understand that now, Whereas before, we were not a people. We were nobody's. Now we're God's people. He says so. Now we had, before, we had no access to God, and now we're, we're, we're His royal priesthood. And so, as we live for Him, and as we declare His excellencies, we offer sacrifices pleasing to Him, and we find… Have you been waiting for this, or did you forget? We find the meaning of life to offer spiritual sacrifices pleasing to God. We can only do that if we are His royal priesthood, if we are His people, and we only get to be that if we come to Jesus. And it's with that I want to draw things to a close, because, you know, we do live in a day, don't we, where it is very common for people to speak about their faith as a private thing, or actually for others to encourage you to keep your faith as a private thing. And it must be linked, I'm sure, to the tendency towards individualism in our society today. People prefer faith to remain private because, I mean, it prevents us getting into difficult discussions. Sometimes life is easier if you just keep it private. Um, and it stops, people, it stops people from feeling uncomfortable, doesn't it, I suppose? 
There's a feeling that if you are of faith, that's great for you, but why does it have to have anything to do with me? Actually, in these verses, we see why faith in Jesus is more than a private matter. You'll notice in your Bible, and it's, it's printed this way in the diary, that, that um, Peter proves his point by quoting from Scripture. And verse 6, he says, for it stands in Scripture. And you can see there's some extra white space on the page, which tells you he's, he's, he's quoting from elsewhere, from the Old Testament. And Peter uses these references to show that actually Jesus is the great dividing line of all of humanity. Jesus is the great dividing line of humanity. So he says, Christians, this is what God has made you through faith in Jesus Christ. And you can be confident of this because in the Scriptures it says, and all that he goes on to say in verses 6, 7, and 8 they center on the place of Jesus Christ in God's plans to save humanity. And so you see that Christians being built into a spiritual household are promised. It was promised, you see this in verse 6, because God would first lay, he would lay the first stone of this building, which is described as a cornerstone chosen and precious. You'll find these words in the book of Isaiah, chapter 28 spoken at a time when, because of their disobedience to God, a message of judgment had come to some of God's people, and yet a promise that God would rebuild the nation, that He would lay a cornerstone on which the new building would take place, and all who believe in Him, as it says there, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And Peter says, and that's the privilege you know if you're a Christian. But, he says, there's another side to that coin, isn't there? What about those who don't believe? That's verse 7. The honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. Verses 7 and 8. Well, the sort of picture that's painted is almost one of surprise. You see... um, there's a rejection of God's cornerstone. Let me just read this. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You see, they reject God's chosen and precious cornerstone. They stumble over him. They are offended by him. But then they find that the very thing they've rejected has actually become the most important thing in the world. How did they miss it? The stumble that's described here is disastrous. Verse 7 is a quotation from Psalm 118, and Jesus himself uses these verses to make a similar point. You would find it in Matthew 21. Jesus tells the parable of the tenants. Um, It's a group of people who rented out a vineyard but they refused to pay rent to the owner. And every time the owner sent a representative to collect the rent, well, first they started beating them up, and then eventually they started killing them. And then it says the owner sent his own son, his only son, and they threw the son out of the vineyard and they killed him. And Jesus asks the question, what do you think the owner will do to these guys, these squatters in his vineyard that killed his son? 
Jesus follows up with this quote. This is verse 42, if you're following there, Matthew 21. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That's Jesus' message to the religious leaders of the day. That they are like those wicked men in the parable who have rejected God's Son, not seen him for who he is. And he says the stumble that then takes place is disastrous. It's almost like, he says, the one who stumbles over this cornerstone is like a china cup. If they fall on it, if they fall on it, then they are broken to pieces. And if the day comes when that cornerstone falls on them, then the result is the same, utter destruction. He's not talking about a little trip over an upturned piece of carpet. He's talking about a fall that leads to utter destruction. And so we see faith in Jesus is no incidental detail of my life or yours. It is the most significant thing for the entire human race. Jesus really is the great dividing line for all of humanity. How you respond to him determines everything. And the divide is this. When you look at Jesus, when you read his life and his words, his death and his resurrection, as they come to us in the pages of the Bible, what do you see? And your answer to that will fall on one side of a line or another. Do you see the Son of God living a life of perfection that you could never attain to? Do you see Him suffering on the cross in the place of sinful people like you and me? Do you see Him risen from the dead, victorious? Do you believe His promise that all who come to Him believing that He is a Savior for them, He will receive, He will forgive, He will never put to shame, even though shame is all that we deserve? And Peter says, if that's you, then you receive honor. You believe simply through believing. Or do you look at this cornerstone and find it offensive? Why would I need help to be right with God? Why should I believe the claims of Jesus? Why would I want to turn my back on this thing, this sin, and follow Jesus instead? Why would I want to become like one of those exiles who the world thinks is weird? No, I'm not going to respond to that. Then this is how we stumble. And remember, stumble here means to be utterly ruined. The stumbling comes at the end of verse 8 because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, he says. And it is the destiny. At the very least, we can say this. It is the destiny of all who disobey Jesus to stumble. What else could happen if you disobey Jesus other than to stumble? But here is hope being held out to you right now in this room today. Look again at the cornerstone that God has laid Jesus, yes, he is by and large rejected by this world, but he says in verse 4, this cornerstone, this living stone is chosen and precious in the sight of God. And when we see that clearly, he becomes precious 
to me. And so let me urge you today, read the Gospels. I mean, don't jump into something simply because I tell you. Read the Gospels. Read about this man, Jesus Christ. Look at what God is building through this man, Jesus Christ. Here we have, in all of our weaknesses and flaws, a picture of the family of believers seeking by God's help to be shaped by this cornerstone into a dwelling place for God. And as you come to Him, as you come to Him in faith, this is what God promises to do in you. And it's as we keep on coming to Jesus that this building work will keep on growing, and not because of us, but because it's built on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. Oh, our Father, we thank you for the immense privileges that belong to each one who simply trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would help every believer to be convinced that these things really are true, that you have declared them to belong to your people and to have access before you. Thank you, Father, that even in some of the simplest things of life, that there we can offer sacrifices pleasing to you and honor you. And Father, for those who are here today who have never trusted in Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you would speak to them. Lord, that it would be your words that would convince them. Lord, we simply pray that you would reveal Jesus Take away every veil from every heart to see Jesus clearly for who he is. And Lord, that you would awaken faith in each one. Help us, Father, as, the, as, a, as a local church here, to be more and more built into a spiritual home where you can dwell. And Lord, where, where others can be drawn in to know you through your Son. We ask it in his name. Amen.